Hey, I'm Matt Markin, and you're listening to episode 61 of the Adventures in Advising podcast. In this episode, I'm chatting with Sherry Souza of the Stubsky Foundation. Dr. Kevin Thomas is guest hosting as he interviews Michael Brody Barshears from University of Southern Indiana. And Dr. Melinda Anderson ends the episode with a mid-year message to you. Don't miss out on future episodes. Subscribe to this podcast and follow us on our socials at Advising Podcast. Without further ado, here's episode 61. What's up? Thank you so much for listening in on this episode. Always great to have you here. It's a jam-packed episode today, so we're going to get right to it with the first interview with Sherry Souza. All right, so let's welcome back to the podcast, and it's definitely been a while, and that is with Dr. Sherry Souza. Dr. Souza was one of the first interviews I ever did for this podcast, and Sherry is the post-secondary success program officer at the Stepsky Foundation where she leads the Hawaii post-secondary success portfolio focused on holistic student support initiatives. Sherry is committed to fostering partnerships and collaborations across the Hawaiian islands to provide students with the access and support they need to realize their educational and career goals. Sherry brings more than 15 years of experience working in higher education as and has engaged with students at community college, baccalaureate, and graduate institutions. Sherry has led initiatives at the University of Hawaii Community Colleges to improve the college-going rate of Hawaii high school students. Sherry earned her bachelor's degree in journalism and master's in business administration from Pacific Lutheran University before returning to Hawaii to earn her doctorate in education from University of Hawaii at Manoa. In her free time, Sherry enjoys running and spending time with family and friends, also enjoys hiking or being at the beach. Sherry, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, man. I'm excited to talk with you again. Yeah. And, you know, when we uh, first did an interview, that was at the annual Nakata Conference in Louisville in 2019. And that became one of the first interviews that was on the podcast when this started in 2020. And it was after the Region 9 networking meeting, and we had about five minutes or so to record an interview before the Region 9 dinner, and I didn't know what I was doing. And then, you know, we had you on the podcast when many of us first went remote and the canceling of the Region conferences in 2020. But that was more to talk about transitioning to online and what that meant. So to me, this is kind of like the actual first real interview I would say we're going to have with you. So how have things been? Things have been good. I didn't realize how long ago that was, but you're right <laughs> how far um, we've come. So super excited to be here. Been a big follower of your podcast. I'm just thankful you're giving, bring me back for the third time. So maybe, <laughs> maybe one of my answers were actually good. Um, <laughs> but since we last talked, um, I moved actually moved out of higher education. So I'm currently working at the Stubsky Foundation, which you had shared. And um, that's definitely been interesting as I thought I'd you know, pretty much retire um, from higher ed. So that's new. Um, still on the Nakata Steering Committee, but as you know, we, we um, tra- I transitioned off as region chair and there's someone much better and, you know, more exciting filling my shoes. I think his name might be Matt Markin. Um, <laughs> but, no, I, I think he has large shoes to fill uh, with, <laughs> with you stepping off, uh, as cycling off as the region night chair. <laughs> but, you know, I was thinking the other day, I was like, when was the last time we actually saw each other in person? Was it Louisville? I think so, because I started with Stepsky in September 2021. So I didn't make it to Ohio. 
and then the conferences prior were all virtual i think is that yeah so <laughs> <laughs> well i'm looking forward to october 2022 because i will be in portland and i will see you there yes portland yeah. for the nakata annual conference yes i'm looking forward to that i mean i think just time is just so weird where it's like you see someone in person but then we see each other so many times on zoom this pandemic and hopefully yeah. <laughs> well i don't think and, i yeah. saw the majority of our steering committee because i was 2019 through 2021 yeah i'm very jealous you got to me i think you met more people on the steering committee yeah i got to I like four of them in person at the region i conference back in march and it was like you all are real this is great so yeah um you'll get to hopefully see some of them in in Portland in October. So those that might not have uh, caught your episodes that you were on, um, can you kind of tell us your path, your journey into higher education, into academic advising? Sure. So I had a little bit of a different path. Um, my undergraduate was in journalism, like you mentioned, and my goal was pretty much to be a news anchor. So after college, worked for a TV station um, and then got laid off due to 9-11. And so at that point, just reevaluating, wasn't sure what I was going to do, and ended up going to work for the dean of the School of the Arts at Pacific Lutheran University. Um, he gave me an opportunity to do academic advising, but also to kind of help him out. And it's funny because I told him, I was like, I don't want to work in education. My mom was a teacher. She told me never to work in education. I'm not interested. And he said, well, the way he sold it was you can go get your MBA degree because they had a tuition remission program. And so he said, just do this for two years, get your MBA degree. And then that way, um, you know, you'll be more marketable. Like, oh, what else am I doing? <laughs> so I did that. Um, actually loved working with students. That was probably the best part of the job. Um, <clears throat> so I uh, did that. And then it snowed. Oh, this is in Seattle. It snowed. I'm from Hawaii. Hawaii girls don't like snow. So I um, told my boss, when the pass is opened after I graduate, I'm going to drive to California. Um, so I didn't have a plan other than driving to California because um, I just did not want to be in snow. So <laughs> passes open in March, um, drove to California and found a position managing endowment accounts at a private boarding school and um, enjoyed it because it gave me the opportunity to still do advising. Um, although I was in the business office um, because it was a boarding school, I had a group of um, high school students that I would advise and just loved that. But then quickly realized that um, while managing money was a lot of fun, I just missed the human element. Um, so decided to look for another opportunity and ended up finding an opportunity at Cal State Fullerton as the, the director of graduate business programs there. Um, and so that just, I loved it. And I knew that I was hooked and I thought I'd be in higher education forever. <laughs> um, worked there for a couple years, then ended up moving back home to work at the University of Hawaii at Manoa as the graduate business programs coordinator, doing pretty much the same thing with the graduate business programs. Um, and then was there for about six years, transitioned to the community colleges, again, working with students who were then transferring to the four years, did that, really loved it, and then ended up, my last position within the University of Hawaii system was at the community college system office, just trying to figure out during the pandemic, what can we do to better access for local students and how can we just help them, you know, get to college after graduation? Um, 2020 was such a rough year for, uh, we all know, <laughs> for so many students. We're just trying to figure out how to get them to college, how to keep them in college, and how to, yeah, how to keep them engaged. And so that was my last position. And, um, yeah, after that, I transitioned to the Stubsky Foundation. 
I'm a program officer for Hawaii Post-Secondary Success. Yeah, so thinking back, it's like you didn't see yourself in higher ed, didn't want to be in higher ed, and then was in higher ed for many, many years and have done excelled in it and helped so many students in it as well. Now, when you were doing, when you were in media, um, how was that? Was that, because I know that was something you wanted to do. How was that experience for you? I loved it. I love talking to people and I'm just nosy. And so you get to interview people <laughs> and just learn things. Um, I love just working under the, under pressure, just having to write, you know, stories. Um, yeah, if I could go back, I would, but it doesn't, um, there's really high turnover in media and I, yeah. And so I was concerned about that. And when I got laid off, they laid off everybody on the top. So they laid off, you know, the big anchors and then they laid off the little people on the bottom, which yeah. was me. And I, I remember thinking at that time, um, I was like, oh, I don't want to be you know, old and not have something to fall back on because I watched a lot of the top anchors just not be able to find something um, because all the, all the media stations were laying off, whether it be radio, TV, and that was their life's work. Um, yeah. So that was just very sobering, I think, for me. But I absolutely loved journalism. And it's very similar to what you're doing. You get to interview people. You get to talk to people. Just um, back when I did it, we had to actually have the beta tape and cut. And it just, I loved all of that editing stuff. It was just so much fun. Now, people listening to this podcast, how many of them know about the beta tape and doing all that? Well, it's even it's like so going. Easy now. Yeah, some people might still complain about that. And I'm like, well, but you have it so much easier than it used to be. When I was a student, we used to have to go to the library, if you know what that is, and actually go and get the microfiche and, you know, and look that up and old news articles and the newspapers. I just remember you had to wait for the, I think when we started to get digitized, you had to wait for it to render. And then sometimes the computer would freeze because it's rendering for like six hours. And right. Yeah, so. Very excited to see where um, technology has moved and see where it takes us. But kind of going back to, or now to like your time in higher ed and, you know, you were talking about how that was something that you didn't see yourself doing, but then ultimately you also were a recipient of the University of Hawaii Regents Medal for Excellence in Teaching. And this is like a tribute to faculty members who exhibit an extraordinary level of subject mastery, uh, teaching effectiveness, even creativity, personal values, um, how it benefits students. Tell us about that award and and receiving it. That was a surprise. Um, <laughs> traditionally, it is a faculty award. Um, I was a faculty with the University of Hawaii, but the way they classify it, I was a faculty counselor. So I think I was one of the first non-instructional faculty to um, be awarded that. So that was um, super just exciting for the counseling field in general. I think I've had a lot of great mentors and, you know, I've had the best department chairs that I was working with at the time and they really supported me. Um, it's, you need both peer nominations as well as student nominations for that. And so it was just such a surprise to be recognized, I think, by, you know, the, the students that I just love. I mean, you know, we all work with students. Um, you never know who you're going to touch. And I think it was just such a special honor to be recognized by them. And then also my peers. The, not the instructional faculty that I worked with, um, we had such a good relationship. And so that was just um, yeah, nice to see them recognize the importance of academic advising and counseling and um, how, you know, if we're working together, we can really create more opportunities, more programming um, and better student outcomes. And so, yeah, so that was, that was pretty special. And I think um, when I had talked to one of the students who nominated me prior, um, you know, after the the event, um, you know, I was thanking her. I said, you know, that was really unexpected. And 
she was just sharing a story how she never thought she'd get in, involved um, in anything on campus. She's like, yeah, I always delete the emails, but she's like, I actually read that one. <laughs> I was like, no, thank you. And she goes, I've never submitted a survey. I've never done anything, but I read that one. And I felt, you know, she was compelled to do it, so she did it. And we we're kind of laughing. And um, I said, well, you know, are you still opening emails? What's going on? Because I haven't seen her in a while. And she goes, oh, you'd be so proud. She actually got into student government. Oh, and so nice. she said, um, she goes, I realized I, I could make a change or, you know, something that I contributed actually, right. she could see the benefit and outcome. Um, and I, I doubt it was, it was not me, but um, <laughs> <laughs> she's like, yeah, after that, I started to, you know, just get a little bit more involved. Cause I would always talk to her also about getting involved in student government and mm-hmm. just, um, I used to advise a student government club. So self-interest. Um, but yeah, <laughs> just, I would always talk to her about different opportunities and stuff. And it was just kind of cool to kind of see that, you know, come full circle. Yeah. And, you know, like you're saying, you, you don't know who, who you're impacting, if anything, um, positively or negatively. Mm-hmm. And in this case, you know, it's it's always one for, you know, I, I know we, we probably impact a lot more students. And, you know, but for someone to be like, let me actually fill this out, go this extra step to submit this survey or this recommendation and nominate someone I think that just shows how much of a positive impact that that you had on this student and probably many other students. So very well deserved uh, for that. And prior to your new role at Stubsky Foundation, you were leading the initiatives at the University of Hawaii Community Colleges. Can you talk about what was all involved uh, in, in that role? Sure. Um, so this was in the very beginning of the pandemic. Um, we were noticing a lot of Hawaii high school students were not completing FAFSA, just not engaged. So if you think back to 2020, yeah, it's hard to, like, what year are we in right now? If you think back to 2020, um, you know, the high school students, they had just transitioned online. A lot of the teachers didn't really understand teaching online, and especially at the high school level. Um, so in our communications with community members, um, the Department of Education instructors, um, this college of recruiters, we were just realizing that Hawaii students weren't going to college. And we weren't sure what their next steps were. Mm-hmm. And so my position was um, kind of created to figure out how do we create some type of programming to get them through the summer or not, I guess, you know, avoid that summer melt, get them yeah. through that summer, and then hopefully um, either give them opportunities at the community colleges, UH. Um, we didn't, I don't want to say we didn't care, but we didn't have a, we just wanted to get them <laughs> into higher education somewhere. I mean, they could have gone, you know, to a, a program on the mainland. We just needed to get these Hawaii kids doing something. And so we created um, the Next Steps to Your Future program, which was a summer bridge program. And we, um, what did we do? We had um, free, I think it was, students could take up to six credits over the summer. Mm. Um, and then we had like an easier application process for the fall semester. So there was also onboarding and different things. So we worked really closely with the high schools, um, the college counselors, the community um, to figure out, you know, what, <laughs> what these students needed, what they wanted. Um, and then we also, um, my, my director did a lot of fundraising also so that we could give students scholarships for the fall semester. Um, so it, it was helpful, you know, looking back when we look at the numbers of students that came, but it was just a time when we were just really concerned about the future of these young people. I look at, I know they're just getting rid of uh, mass mandates in Hawaii and they're kind of lessening um, the restrictions and just looking at the students who are graduating this coming May in a couple of weeks, 
compared to the students um, that we worked with. And they've come such a <laughs> such a long way, but there's still so many things that I wonder about just, you know, social, emotionally, um, because it's yeah. a different time that they were in um, during the pandemic. Yeah, a hundred percent. And, you know, it's like, yeah, they're, they're completing it, which is great. You know, they're graduating, but yeah, how are they, you know, it, it's these last few years, even like for staff and it's just all across the board, staff, faculty, and then especially the students, you know, how are they going to be dealing with kind of like this, where we're at now, where you, you have a lot of restrictions that are lifted. We're kind of going back to, to some type of normalcy, but the time that they were in, in school, it was just so much different. But if anything, like students are resilient and they've adapted as best they can. So, you know, wish them the best on, on everything that happens after this. But hopefully there is the, the additional help for them as well that, that we might be able to provide them. And now you work at the Stupsky Foundation. And for those who don't know, like, what is this foundation? What's, what's the mission? So the Stepsky Foundation is a private spend-down foundation um, focused in the geographies of Bay Area, California, so the San Francisco area, as well as Hawaii. And so our founders were Joyce and Larry Stepsky, and they that, those were their beloved communities. They had um, homes in the Bay Area, and they spent a lot of time at their homes um, in Hawaii as well. And so um, being immersed in the community really showed them there were some definite needs that they saw. And so they really wanted to contribute back to those communities that they lived in. So the foundation focuses on four areas. The first one is food security. The second one is early brain development. Uh, third one is serious illness care. And then the fourth one is post-secondary success. And so um, as a spend down foundation, that means we're getting, we're pretty much spending all of our assets by 2029. And the rationale behind that is our founder really wanted to see the greatest amount of change in her lifetime. Um, unfortunately, she passed this past June However, her legacy, um, you know, is really to create that really big system change. Um, we're kind of a different funder in that we do things a little bit differently. We're really community-based, really working with um, different organizations and institutions to see how we can best increase student outcomes in the post-secondary success area. And so it's it's been really interesting and just such a great um, experience being on now on the other side of higher education and really looking into the communities that I live in and I'm part of and Seeing, you know, what can we do to better outcome, um, to better improve the outcomes for these young people in Hawaii? That sounds very much like a really great organization, this foundation and and kind of this, the model that you all are implementing and kind of the values and beliefs from the founders. And, and yeah, I'm excited to see kind of what happens over these next few years through 2029. And now your specific role, you're the Hawaii Post-Secondary Success Program Officer. So what does that role uh, mean? What does that role entail? It's a mouthful. It took me a while yeah. to get it off. <laughs> right. Does it all fit on the business part of one line? <laughs> it's two lines. Um, so I'm driving the initiatives in Hawaii. And so we have, I have a um, colleague who's the program officer in the Bay Area. And then we have a director who oversees the two of us. But as far as all of the strategies in Hawaii, um, I'm responsible for creating them and then going out and working with community um, organizations and institutions to really implement them. So in the area of post-secondary success in Hawaii, there's four strategies that I'm looking at. So the first one is general advising. So how do we get young people to college? How do we keep them in college? And then how do we help them graduate? Um, you know, working in higher ed, you all know that why that's so important. <laughs> um, the second one is looking at workplace learning opportunities. So how can we better prepare our young people for the next chapter? And so whether that be 
um, going to college. So working with colleges, working with high schools to create more apprenticeship models or other type of opportunities, that's one route. And then the other route is really realizing that college isn't for every student. And if it's not, that's fine. But, you know, what can we do to better prepare those young people who decide not to go to college? Are there other um, workplace learning type of opportunities, um, certifications, things that we can um, offer to them so that when they do graduate high school, they're able to earn a livable wage? That's the second area. The third area is holistic student support systems. And so everything outside of the classroom. Um, we, we both know how important mental health is right now. Um, but you know, if you can't take care of your basic needs, it's really hard to be a student in the classroom, right? You can have nine out of 10 needs met, but if it's that, that, that 10th need that's gonna unfortunately have really negative um, effects on students. So looking at um, holistic student support systems. And the fourth area is um, unique to Hawaii. It's community building, so to speak. So in Hawaii, it's such a collective nature and it's not just the, um, nuclear family that's raising a child. It's really the whole community. Um, so what can we do to create more discussion and more conversations about post-secondary options? And so again, college, yes, obviously, you know, definitely want to push college, but realizing that um, college may not be for everyone and what kind of conversations can we start having at a community level to encourage students to think about post-secondary um, opportunities and options? And so those are the strategy areas I'm focusing on. Um, I have a emphasis in to the rural communities and neighboring islands. Um, although I grew up on Oahu, um, Oahu is very well resourced. Um, one of the challenges I think living in an island state is that each island has its own challenges and you know, downtown um, is located on Oahu. And so if you live say on Kauai, um, you don't have as many, you don't have access to as many of the opportunities um, that you know, living on Oahu would be. So I am looking for more opportunities on the neighbor islands. Seems very, very holistic with it. And yeah, it's it's nice that it's, you know, college is a push, higher ed's a push, but you're looking at all kind of alternatives or, you know, different pathways uh, for, for individuals, whether it is college bound or not. And then when you keep, you know, when you're talking about community and then I'm, I'm thinking like it takes a village, you know, for, for a lot of this. So um, very much has like kind of this grassroots effort in, in a way. And with that in mind, you were in higher ed for many years, still kind of tied to higher ed in a way with this position, but also in a way you're the outside person looking in on, on higher ed. How is it kind of going from being kind of in it to now being the outside person watching it and maybe having some type of impact on it? It's it's kind of weird. <laughs> I never thought I'd leave higher education but now looking from the outside, I feel really blessed in that I do grant making. So I have resources that I can actually contribute to these communities that I was a part of. Working in higher ed, I remember there was times we're like begging for $100 to do a pizza party or something, you know, something small. Um, but now I'm on the other side of that and that, you know, I'm trying to encourage groups to think a little bit bigger and think wider to see, you know, what kind of impact or what kind of programming, what kind of um systems can we change to make better outcomes for students and just feeling really blessed that I'm able to funnel resources, um, you know, to kind of help those things occur. I think working in higher ed gives me also a unique perspective because I think, um, and my experience was always, you know, when our, when the college would apply for grants as an academic advisor or counselor, I wasn't too involved. Um, typically, you know, it was more at the dean level. And then things would kind of come down and we had to implement it, which is good. Um, but it would have been nice <laughs> to, to have a little bit more of a voice. 
And so now as I'm doing grant making, um, you know, I'm always trying to pull in student voice. I'm trying to pull in the voice of the people who will actually be implementing it. Um, because I think a lot of times, um, you know, while the people um, who are in administration may be applying for the grant, they don't see the day in and day out. They understand it very well, but they don't see what's on the ground. Um, so I think that's that's one unique perspective that I've kind of brought to this grant making is really trying to almost crowdsource, <laughs> you know, um, information just with the understanding that in student success, there's so many components and so much I think that advisors know um, that admin may not be privy to just because they have so much going on. Um, so really trying to change the way that um, we do our request for proposals process and really trying to just bring those voices into the into the conversation. Yeah, well, I bet there's people listening going, wow, I wish that I had something like that at my institution. I mean, it's but I think a lot will probably agree that a lot of it is at the dean at higher admin level. Then it kind of just like trickles down. But it is great to where it's like you have like a lot of the voices, especially those that are on the ground at the front lines that really ha- know that day to day and have that experience. It can really help give some of that that knowledge, and, you know, maybe put that into the grant and make it worth its while. Um, I know for me, like we have at our institution, we have a. Um, a technology grant uh, where they kind of use some of the uh, student fees that goes to this grant. So there is like a lot of assessment that goes with it. If you do get the grant, so you got to you know prove it that, that you utilized everything, but kind of just going through that whole process. I was so glad to be able to do it from, you know, start to finish, like, Oh, this is how some this goes, you know, for, for, for grant writing, but to, you know, get the grant. And then it's like, okay, now I have this money. I got to figure out how, how we're going to actually use it. It's a great experience. I encourage anyone, you know, if you have the opportunity to help with a grant, write a grant, definitely do it. And here's more of a personal question. You know, you, you know, again, going from higher ed to the, to this foundation, what led, what were kind of some of the reasons that was like, you know what, let me make this decision to, to, in a sense, leave higher ed for the Stubsky Foundation? You know, was it something about the foundation that that connected with you? Um, you know, what what was the factors that, that made you kind of take that leap? It was a hard decision because I had been with the universe. I just feel so old. <laughs> I'm, like, I, I'm thinking about retirement, but I, I can't retire yet. But um, I was vested. Um, I had my retirement set. Um, I was ready to apply, you know, for that last promotion in the faculty ranks. Um, and so I had to weigh all of that. Um, when this opportunity came up, and like I said, I had no intention of leaving. Um, I think I applied maybe on the last or second to the last day because I really just kind of thought, oh, you know, I, I'm happy where I am. Um, but when I was thinking about it, I just kind of thought, you know, how blessed would I be if I was in that um, role in which I could direct the um, post-secondary strategy in Hawaii. And, you know, I'm from Hawaii. I moved away, came back, have no intention of leaving ever again. Um, and this is really the community that my kids are going to grow up in. And I just thought, how awesome would it be to be a part of that conversation? Um, and having worked at the university level and understanding some of the constraints when it came to budgetary um, budgetary issues and thinking, well, if I, if I worked for the foundation, if I had this opportunity, I could really direct funding to certain areas. Um, so that was one thing that kind of encouraged me to go after this and learn a little bit more and actually turn the application in. Um, and then I was talking to um, my, my director at the time. Um, she's actually the one who encouraged me to apply. And so just um, was really grateful that even though me applying and eventually leaving did kind of um, put her at a disadvantage because she was down, you know, people. 
um, she really did encourage me to take that risk. And something she had told me was, um, I forget how she phrased it, but she said, you know, you can always come back to higher ed. This isn't the rest of your life with the spend down foundation. They're only around for nine years, but imagine the change you can make, especially, you know, to your community and just being, uh, being a local girl and just having that opportunity, I think was really attractive. Um, just because, you know, being in Island state, there's just access issues. Um, you know, there's funding issues. It's, we're not connected to the rest of the United States. So even just traveling um, has always been a burden for our young people because we can't just get in the car and drive, you know, X amount of miles to do college trips. A lot of the students um, go to college blind, you know, they just, wherever they're accepted. So being able to just really impact areas such as um, like even college affordability, you know, so many students pick the college based on where they get the greatest scholarships, but they don't often think about college fit. And that's just, it breaks my heart because I see all these students then coming home, coming back and they're like, well, it just didn't work out. It wasn't the right fit. And so I think just being, yeah. So when she, when my, when she put it in that perspective, I thought, you know, that that's something that I'm just going to try for. And if it happens, it happens, but if not, you know, I'm not going to be upset. I'm still with university of Hawaii, which is great. Um, and I, yeah, made it through the interview process. And as I talked with the team at Stutsky, really realized that my values were really aligned with them. And just the more that I talked, the more I researched and saw what the opportunity could provide, this really got me excited. And so here I am. I'm actually in San Francisco today. Um, I work remotely from home in Hawaii, but every now and then up here. So, yeah, it's a great place yeah. to be. <laughs> and then if, if anyone's watching the, the YouTube version of this um, in the background, there's buildings outside of uh, Sherry's office. What floor are you on? I'm on the 11th floor. And so... Um, yeah, in downtown, in the financial district in San Francisco, which is, I never imagined myself working in a high rise. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, beautiful building here. Um, I have an office um, for when I come up. Yeah, that's great. Like you, you know, you're in Hawaii, but then travel to San Francisco. You already have an office there. Hey, you can't beat that. That's awesome. And I think kind of tied to what you were saying about like your values and everything, like there's a quote, and I think it was on the website that said, now is the time to strengthen Hawaii's diverse communities by investing in our young people. And I am honored to be working in the community I grew up in and am inspired by the foundation's commitment to supporting positive changes that will last long into Hawaii's future. So that was a perfect quote that, that you had there. And what do you think about the, you know, this great resignation that a lot of people keep talking about and many of us are actually kind of witnessing happen, not, you know, it's happening all over, but a lot of us are seeing it within like higher ed. Yeah. And to be honest, you know, when I was there just, um, and that was in 2020, just looking at how burnt out people were in the beginning um, and hearing conversations, you know, that, that burnout has continued. Um, and as we're kind of, again, reopening, just really being concerned because, you know, there's often a lot of support for faculty. Um, but when it comes to the academic advisor, sometimes I feel that just the support isn't there because admin may not truly understand everything that being an academic advisor entails. Um, I know there's days that you go from like really just doing, you know, grad checks, but then there's all this other stuff that comes out is when you're looking into, you know, why did you get a D in this class and you're not graduating, but so much more comes out and then you end up spending, you know, hours with a student um, and doing referrals and whatnot. And it's those types of things I think that admin don't realize. And so when they look at these um, sometimes, you know, return to work policies or whatnot, um, it, it can create an un, un, unintended divide, I think, between instructional and non-instructional people. 
Um, but the great resignation, I'm just so worried about it because, you know, you can't have all these student success initiatives at the statewide or at the institutional level without academic advisors. Yes, faculty are very important because they're teaching the content, but it's that support, you know, it's academic advisors that are keeping young people at college and in the classrooms. So I worry that if people are leaving the field, um, what that'll look like for students in our future. Um, can I share something that the foundation is doing? Yes, go for it. Yeah. So um, when I, kind of going back to one of your previous questions about what, what it's like now being on the outside looking into higher ed. Um, one of the things that we've been talking about is we have been supporting a lot of academic advising initiatives. And my director said, you know, do you think I'm doing good? Like, do you think I'm doing good? Or am I making the lives of academic advisors more challenging? And so I was like, well, to be honest, I think you're making it a little bit more challenging. Um, because again, these are one of these, you know, bigger grants. Um, and there weren't a lot of academic advisors involved in the creation of it. But then I said, what if we look into a way that we can support academic advisors a little bit more? And so she and I started talking and she came up with this great idea to see if we can um, pretty much do an open request for proposals for some a select group of um, advisors and see if they can come up with advisor wellness um, initiatives, um, realizing that a lot of times wellness is not, well, while it's important and while it, it may be prioritized, funding sometimes can't just flow free, freely there just due to the funding sources. A lot of times for state institutions, you can't buy food with you know tuition revenue money or things like that. Um, so she and I were brainstorming and came up with an idea um, to kind of pilot, in, pilot it in Region 9 um, to see if academic advisors can come up with basically advising wellness initiatives to help advisors just have better mental health and wellness, you know, now. Um, and then also to bring more attention to the advising profession. Um, so we're hoping to launch that um, in the next couple of weeks and then have um, kind of a pilot at the 2022 um, annual conference, but excited to see the the type of initiatives that come out through there. Um, we're kind of saying, you know, we don't want to sponsor pizza party, um, but really encouraging and challenging people to think deeper. What type of systems changes can we create, you know, at the college, at the institution level to ensure that advisors are being um, taken seriously, you know, and are also not overworked and are in an environment in which they feel valued um, because I think that all contributes right to that great resignation. It's feelings of um, just not being valued, um, burnout, the long hours, not being recognized. And so what can you do to kind of shift that perspective and just focus really on advisor wellness? Yeah, it's, you know, what what are the answers if there are answers and, and solutions to this? But if anything, I think this is a, a great step in that direction. And then you're bringing in, you know, having, again, people from from the, you know, the, the front lines making these initiatives happen that trickle down to them and now with less people. So hopefully they'll, they'll have some creative ideas of, of what can be done to at least, you know, whether it's, it solves it or helps with not making it as bad as things currently are for for a lot of a lot of folks and one of the things too is like now that we kind of are getting towards the end of, of this interview um you like to hike and go to the beach a lot of people are probably jealous of that <laughs> that you live in hawaii uh, do you have a favorite hiking spot or a favorite beach you like to go to favorite hiking we like to do the kind of point trail it's probably a good four or five miles but there's beach along the way so 
we go look for shells, um, go play in the water when we get hot. And then I usually feed the kids lunch at the end of the hike and it's like a direct shot back. But yeah, I think that's probably our favorite hike. It gets hot. There's no shade, but it's, it's just beautiful. And then you're <laughs> at the tip of the island. And then pretty much any beach on the North Shore without a whole bunch of people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was just talking to someone. They're going to Oahu. And they're like, where should we go to the beach? And I was like, stay out of Waikiki. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, yeah, any beach with not a lot of people. We usually go to the more um, hidden ones through like access paths and stuff. Oh yeah. Well, go to Waikiki if you just want to see where a lot of shows are <laughs> <Yes>. filmed. <you> know? <laughs> or you just want to be surrounded by a whole bunch of people. <laughs> that too. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely travels opened up. Um, my flight up here was packed and I actually had to wait at TSA to get through the pre-check line. That hasn't happened um, the previous two times I was up, but oh. travel back. <laughs> travel for better or for back. worse. Yeah, and then uh, Southwest, you know, now goes to to Hawaii. So maybe people get some some good discounts on some tickets to to go. Hopefully, take a vacation or something. And then if anyone has any questions, or you know, based off something you've you've said, uh, or want to follow up with you, how can they reach out to you? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. Yeah, they can reach out on LinkedIn or they can email me. My email is sherry, C-H-E-R-I at stupski.org. Awesome. Wait, hold on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is it work or is it, what is my email? Why am I having a moment? Uh, what on that? Sherry is at stupski.org. It is org, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> For some reason, I was like, is that right? <laughs> Sorry. I might just leave this part in. <laughs> Give them my fake email. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, it bounced back. What's going on? <laughs> well, sure. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to be on this podcast. And again, I feel like this, the first official one I feel, because again, the, the, when we did it in 2019, I didn't know what I was doing. I just had a camera and a microphone. Still didn't know what I was doing when you uh, were on the podcast early on. We were talking about the pandemic. So I feel like I know what I'm doing now, at least for the most part. <laughs> You could have fooled me each time. You were always a professional and so, so good and ready to go. But thank you so much for having me back. I really appreciate this chance to just talk to you. And um, yeah, I love what you're doing. So keep it up. Yeah, maybe we'll follow up uh, end of the year, or early next year and see how things have gone with the with the grants. Yeah, I would love to do that. Thanks, Sherry, for coming back on the podcast. Hopefully I did a better job as an interviewer from when this podcast started two and a half years ago. It was great catching up and learning about your time at the University of Hawaii Community Colleges, transitioning over to the Stupski Foundation, and all the great work you do there, and your thoughts on the great resignation. We'll be chatting soon. Up next, let's get to Kevin Thomas interviewing Michael Brody Brochiers. 
Let's all go back to the podcast, Dr. Kevin Thomas from University of Central Arkansas. Kevin, it's June and already it's new student orientation season. So I appreciate you making time to be back on the podcast. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad to be here and uh, guest hosting today and, and just spending some time with the advising community. It's, it's great to be back on, on the podcast. For sure. And last time you were here, it was episode 29. So that was titled Showcasing Opportunities. And like you said, you're back on now as a guest host. So I will turn it over to you. Fantastic. Thanks, Matt. I'm so glad to be introducing our guest today. Uh, Michael Brody Shears is here with us. Uh, He serves as the Assistant Vice President for Academic Success at the University of Southern Indiana. This is really the most formal thing in this podcast today, folks. Um, in, his, in his role, he oversees the university division, which includes academic skills, the Center for Exploring Majors, uh, career counseling, student support services, and the four advising centers within uh, the undergraduate colleges. He also coordinates, because he's not busy enough, the university's FYE course, UNIV 101. Uh, prior to this appointment, um, Brody served as the director of the university division, of US, uh, at university division at USI. Before joining USI, Brody created and then directed the newly formed Academic Advising Center for Undecided Students at Northern Illinois University, and he spent six years as an academic advisor at the University of Northern Iowa. Brody is an active member within NACADA, a current ELP mentor. Congrats on that recent role. Uh, Finished a three-year term on the NACADA Board of Directors in 2019, and prior to that, completed a two-year term on the NACADA Council. And he's also served a two-year term as region chair for Region 5. Brody has presented and is a fantastic presenter at numerous regional and annual conferences on topics including advising administration, happiness, meaning making, and the advising profession, advising systems, needs of undecided students, and peer advising programs. He has spent his entire career helping students make the most of their college experience. Honesty, openness to to diversity, and collaboration are important are all important in all that he does. He views his primary role in the profession as an educator with an ethical responsibility to improve the lives of those around him. Brody received his bachelor's degree in political science from Indiana University, a master's in college student personnel services from Miami University. He lives in Evansville, Indiana with his wife, wife, Catherine, two daughters, Macy and Peyton, and three dogs and three cats. And he did include the names of the dogs and cats in the bio. I chose to leave those out because whew, that's a long bio to begin with, Brody. So thanks for being here with us today. I said you could edit it as you I needed. Did. You made yeah. me sound a lot more important than I really am. That's for sure. You're 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 an important guy. So yeah. So why don't we get started, right? Like I always think that the best part uh, or one of the best parts of the podcast is is really like a, a Marvel movie in my yeah. in my mind, right? Okay. It's your origin story. Right. Like so in the profession, can you talk a little bit about your journey and how you've ended up to where you're at today? Yeah, you know, my undergraduate degree is in political science. And I'm really first off, I'm really excited to be here. Right. Like this is amazing. Uh, And I'm glad to be talking with you, dear friend. Right. Advising colleague. This is pretty amazing. To, to even uh, be able to uh, kind of be on the podcast. And Matt's doing a wonderful job with this. I think this is a great service to the advising profession. And so I'm just kind of honored to be here. I, I, w- I would tell you that, you know, when I started school, I was an undecided student. I thought uh, maybe I wanted to be a lawyer or teach government in high school. And, 
you know, this is kind of how it works for tons of people in the field. But I became a resident assistant my junior year at Indiana University. And I kind of fell in love with working with college students. And you, you just had good advice from people, right? People were saying, hey, you can do this for a career. You need a master's degree. I went to Miami of Ohio, kind of, you know, I, I hit the jackpot, right? I got to work with Peter Magolda and Marsha Baxter Magolda and Judy Rogers there. And yeah. the assistantships there kind of combined housing and advising. So I felt really lucky, right? Right. I had most of my experience had been in housing and even my first job post-masters was at the University of Northern Iowa in housing. But one of the really cool things about both my work as a graduate assistant at Miami, as well as my first job at Northern Iowa. Uh, I'm old enough that back in the day, those hall director contracts were only nine months, right? Like right. you only worked during the school year. And and so I kind of contracted out uh, and really negotiated hard to be able to do advising uh, in the summers with orientation, right? And just kind of fell in love with advising. I, I, also did that my first year as a graduate student at Miami, that first year advisor position um, at Miami of Ohio, right? Combined academic advising and housing responsibilities. So for the most part, my path is pretty linear. I transitioned from housing to advising when I was at Northern Iowa after having those three summers. I, I did the hall directing work at Northern Iowa for three years. And then that summer work, I was able to work in summer orientation and then full-time role opened up in that office and just, I was lucky enough to get that job and, and work with undecided students and really have just been progressing since, um, you know, I'm at the university of Southern Indiana is in my hometown, right? So most of my moves professionally have kind of moved me closer to family. Um, uh, you know, my folks are here, my wife's folks are here. And so it's been a great 15 years at the University of Southern Indiana. I've had lots of opportunities to grow university division, right? You can tell that in terms of my title shift and responsibilities, but it's a pretty linear path, man. Housing, housing to advising and housing, I think is a great background to start, right? Like, I think you have a housing background too, don't you, Kevin, right? Like I, we're very similar in that way, right? I, and so I, I do, yeah. It just informs, I think, kind of your understanding of the students and their experience and has been tremendously helpful both in my role as an advisor as well as an advising administrator. So it's a boring path, man. I mean, I, deci I decided I wasn't going to be in housing after year three at the University of Northern Iowa. I had a couple of, uh, I had a couple really just tremendously high profile, challenging student situations at Northern Iowa my second year as a hall director there. And I just made a conscious effort after my second year as a hall director that I needed to move away from housing. Right. And so I had let my supervisor know that I was going to do that for one more year. I didn't have anything in the, no plans in the fire. And so I got kind of lucky, right. That those positions opened up at, at that same institution in advising because come August, I was going to be unemployed, right? And it just, it fell right into my lap. And so I'm pretty grateful for that institution. I spent nine years there. I'd never been to Iowa before I, before I actually took the job there. I essentially interviewed in Iowa, had never stepped foot in that state and then lived there 10 years. Both my kids were born there. It was great. I loved it. I'd go back there in a second. Iowa is a great place to live. Super fun. Sometimes it's about taking that leap, right? Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, no, your your path always reminds me of mine, 
right? And um, teaching a course in uh, student success and advising, coming from housing to advising. I remember my uh, always mentor in life, Ellen Bonaguro, saying to me um, during my interview process, she, she said, never say you don't know how to advise. You just don't know the curriculum yet. Yeah. Right? And, and I mean, in, when you work in housing, when you talk about that being relationships and connections and networking and um, student support, I mean, those things are so much a part of advising. And you bring that skill set with you that she was just 100 percent right on the curriculum being a big part of that. Yeah. Knowing the whole student. Right. Like to me, we're better in advising when we take the time to know the whole student. Right. And you mentioned origin story. Right. I, I talk to my advisors when when advisors interview for jobs here, they say, well, what what's really what are you really looking for? Right. And I just think, you know, every student has a story. And if we're not if we're not really willing to listen and commit to understanding that story, we, we I, th- I think we're we're incomplete in our in our work uh, in the advising role. There's no question about that. So I think my next question kind of piggybacks on that some, but uh, is not intended to call you old, but to, to, to say, hey, you've been in the profession for a bit. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think I need to put this caveat. I didn't start with this. Brody and I are incredibly good friends outside of this podcast, but also outside of higher education profession. We're often talking about cardinals and life and all the things going on. I mean, we connect in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, listen, if I was interviewing anybody else, I'm not going to start off a question with, so you're old. But, <laughs> so you're old. <laughs> I am old. So it's think true. about this, this time in higher education, but maybe even more specifically your time in advising. And um, recently at the Administrators Institute, one of the topics that kept coming up for folks that are in roles like we are is that advising is so many more things than they feel like it used to be, Um, where all of a sudden advising has aspects of student success and retention and enrollment management um, and others that I'm probably not even thinking about. When you think about that, your time frame in advising, what what, what do you think about those aspects of non-academic advising primary things and how they've kind of been more highlighted in the role here in, in recent years? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step guide to starting your podcast today. Well, I think it's certainly been an evolution, right? Like there's no question about that. Um, You know, so I got my chops working with undecided students, right? Or exploratory students. Um, I even think our work with that population uh, has changed significantly, right? Like this return on investment and the value of a a college degree and the, the willingness to utilize exploration, right? Right. Right. We need David Spite and Carrie Kincannon on this call, Kathleen Chase Smith, right? Our, our work with undecided students 
and I'm leaving pl- plenty of other folks, Christine Bowl, Christina Bowles, right? all, all these folks that have been working with undecided students understand, for example, that even the notion of exploration has changed dramatically, right? And that that time crunch and, and getting folks the career relevance of the work that we're doing and trying to connect curriculum to career relevance. Um, and that's made that process maybe both more challenging for advisors as well as students, both, right? Like students feel that pressure, both from parents and external sources. But if, if we go back to advising, so so that's kind of a at the micro level as we work with students and, and the student evolution of, of the complexity of advising. But if we look at it from a, a more advising profession perspective, there's no doubt, for example, like on our campus, we might not say we're financial aid counselors and we're not, but we have to understand the financial aid process pretty well, right? To, to, to be as effective as we possibly can be in terms of our work with students. And, you, you know, across the country, both like in the state of Indiana, for example, the performance funding model that's in, in terms of the funding that we get from the state, right? It really predicates student success. So there's there's an added pressure to the advising role from my perspective. I think many institutions rightly view advising as a critical component of the student success experience. And so I think there's an added pressure to that too, right? Like first year retention, graduation rates, and, and for administrators specifically, like tracking that data in such uh, specific and detailed ways, right? And trying to to see and understand why students leave and why students stay. And advisors are at the heart of that, right? Like they know, like they, they know, they know the obstacles that students might be facing to come back after the first year. They understand what challenges students are going to face to earn a degree in four years, right? They, they, they see um, some of the obstacles or the bureaucracy that's going to create roadblocks for students progressing through an institution. And I just think that that has made the role a lot more complex. It's made the role a lot more complicated. I do view advising as a critical component of the undergraduate experience. But one of the other things that's happened, right, is is I do think that there becomes this pressure that advising is the only place where those kinds of things can be identified. And we we really, I think as a profession, we we kind of short shift our work if we don't articulate that even advising is one component of the overall retention experience, right? right. You know, students spend a ton of time in the classroom. I spend a lot of time in our UNIB 101 training talking about the power that faculty have in overall retention and success of students, right? And helping faculty understand and helping administrators understand that the housing experience matters, right? For students living off, off campus, the, the commuter experience matters and, and how we're touching students in those ways. The, the way that advising informs that, I think, has changed dramatically. And, and that's really the ultimate change in the role, right? So there are some higher expectations that come along with that. But at the same time, I think it's, I think it's a burden that we are going to continue to bear, right? There's no doubt about that. And we just need to understand that that if you have that kind of knowledge about students in their lives, you're going to be asked to, to play a big role in the student success and retention efforts. Yeah. It's uh it's one of those things where I am 
uh, intrigued by conversations with administrators where you get to this point where people will say uh, or have said, you know, gosh, look at everything we're doing. Why aren't people paying attention? And then when people pay attention, why are you paying attention so much? Absolutely. Absolutely. So this is a balance that we we, we kind of want to control. Um, And because retention is held so closely to the advising relationship, um, it's a lot of attention in advising. Um, And it should be, right? I think advising does play a pretty critical role there. So yeah, I think think you're absolutely right. So uh, let me ask, right? Because often... um, we have conversations about the advising academic advisor role. So let's talk about it from your administrator perspective. Um, the most important part of your job is dot, dot, dot. Uh, my job is to make sure advisors have the tools they need to be successful, right? Like at the end of the day. And the second part of that is, is to develop a, a team where the, the relationships are, are, are connected and important. Right. And, and that we're utilizing the strengths of folks. You know, I've got about 20 to 25 full time folks, right, both advisors as well as directors. Uh, and quite honestly, the, the good chunk of my job is really kind of helping them overcome the barriers and roadblocks that they need to be successful in the work of seeing students every day. Right. So whether that's technologies or policies and procedures or uh, a pay and compensation, right? Like making sure that advisors are valued financially uh, by the institution, right? Like I, I think it's all of those fights. It's all of those fights from my perspective. You know, when I was a new administrator, I think, you know, we should talk about this a little bit, right? I've been doing administrative work now pretty much since 2004. So almost 20 years of full-time administrative experience where I'm really advising really isn't my primary role anymore. But I have a sheet of paper that I keep in my office that says I'm an administrator, not an advisor, right? And that that transition was difficult, right? To see things from an individual and micro perspective versus a macro perspective. So I think that's the other role of the administrator, right? We, we all, we all hear the importance of the story, right? Uh, And so those stories, those, those individual instances where things aren't working the way that we would like, right? They inform larger macro issues. And that's really, I think, that where the administrator can have the most impact, right, is to say these are anecdotes, but these anecdotes reflect maybe a larger problem. Like I think about Kathleen Shea Smith's keynote, I think in St. Louis, was it? You chaired that conference. I remember in 2017. So 2017, yeah, St. Louis, but she was in, I think she was Atlanta, wasn't she? Oh, maybe she was Atlanta. Yeah. But remember, she said numbers are people and people yep. are numbers, right? Like, I yep. just, I love that, right? I love that. And so an administrator, I think, has to, they have to provide that balance, right? Like, you know, so when I meet with my directors every week, they'll come to me with a couple of stories. And so I always try to help them understand, like, we've got to frame this story at a, at a, at a more systematic level, right? And And figure out what does this mean from a, from a macro level in terms of solutions and systems. Uh, and 
that's the stuff that I kind of geek out about now that I feel kind of good about is, is to be able to kind of help folks maneuver through that. Uh, and that's, that's the role of an administrator. I mean, bottom line is, is to serve your folks, right. And make sure that they have the tools they need to be successful and that you're giving them opportunities to grow and get better based on their own strengths and what they want to accomplish all under the mission of the institution. Right. Right. So as long as we're, we're, we're still uh, meeting the goals of the institution overall. Yeah. The transition that you talk about there, I think it's always a good reminder for folks in the profession because so often you have advisors that are sitting in their seat that want to be administrators and you have administrators that are sometimes sitting in their seat, wish they could be advisors again. And so if you can't frame what you talked about to like understand that the way you impact students and your relationship with students is different, but you still have an ability to leave a lasting impression um, in the work that you do, whether that's um, how you support your directors, how you support advisors, how you, you ensure that there are classes there for during orientation season. You know, I mean, yeah. there's just a whole host of things that are there that I think you're absolutely right when you when you mentioned that, um, because that, that that's an important part of that transition is understanding that your role changes and that directness of instant uh, gratification of a job well done is sometimes uh, left a little further down the road. Note to self, I got to check course availability for orientations <laughs> this Thursday. You know, the other thing too, right? Like, I think being an advising administrator now is harder than ever, right? Like, there are lots... There are lots of challenges and lots of days where you don't automatically feel like you're making a difference. And the one thing I feel pretty proud of, right, and I've told people, like when when you add responsibilities to a role, uh, it can get hard to feel like you're doing your job effectively, right? But I've never I've never left my job any day going, yeah, I wasn't fighting like hell for improvement of advising and student success. I mean, I feel pretty good overall that as long as you're doing those things and thinking about how do we improve advising, how do we improve the the student experience? If you're if you're thinking that way every day, even on the bad days, you got to feel good about yourself as an advising administrator. It's hard. Uh, and there are going to be days where you're going to feel like you got kicked around and, and beat up pretty good. But I think as long as you're continuing to fight for students and student success and advising, uh, you can feel pretty good about yourself. Now, Brody, uh, when you think about, um, we, we still have a pandemic that is lingering um, and, a, and a virus that is lingering. But when you think about your role in pre-pandemic, um, pre-March you know March 2020, and now, um, how have you changed in your support of advising and then maybe how you feel like advising has changed in that time period? I know it's a loaded question. So I think, so let's just talk about lessons first, maybe, right? Like to, to me, one of the first lessons is we can meet students in a lot of different ways and a lot of different venues, right? Sure. And, and they find, they, I th- and I think what we've come to learn is that there's a flexibility to that that maybe we didn't think really existed in the past. But now it's pretty clear that that flexibility, I think, both for advisors as well as for students is seen as a positive. 
And so I think we have to leverage that, right, as a profession and kind of figure out how a new world of flexibility impacts role, impacts student success, impacts the way that we do orientations, impacts the way that we do advising, impacts the way that we do first year experience, it impacts everything. And so um, with like with any new student that comes here as an 18 year old, right? Like it's, it's almost like relearning and reestablishing identities and, and trying to understand like what, uh, what does this mean in my role? And the other thing that I'd say is, you know, I think about the pandemic a lot, right? I remember March 12th, 2020 really well. It's my anniversary. First off my wedding anniversary. It's also the day that, Everything shut down. So here I am on campus March 13th. And our institution is one of those institutions that does orientations in the spring, right? So uh, in the past, we have two sessions in March, two in April, and those sessions register about 800 students. That's sometimes 60 to 55 to 60% of our incoming class is already registered by April. Well, I go to a meeting on the 13th. It's the last meeting I went to on campus. And essentially we were told, you know, this is going to be, uh, this is going to happen. You're going to do these orientations, even if you have to do them from home. And so I remember spending that week, right, getting getting webcams and getting laptops and getting people the tools they needed. And the one thing that was really awesome is we registered 800 people in March and April. And, and in May, we were presenting to Nakata on a webinar about how to do it. And so, you know, the one thing that I take from that is don't ever underestimate what advisors can do, right? We stepped up big time at the University of Southern Indiana. And I remember, you know, when we presented online and did that webinar, I remember some of the chats, like, how did you do this? Like, we're still nowhere close to being ready. And in one week, my folks, and my folks get all the credit. I didn't do anything except get them the tools they made that happen, right? And it was amazing. So more donuts. Um, we're, we're here. We're fighting for additional salary uh, equity, right. right? Like yep. You, you just really start to look at how important the role is. I say thank you a lot more now. Uh, and, and I'm hopeful that, and, and I know that thank you sometimes aren't enough, right? Like we've had lots of people leave the profession. Yep. Um, and I think now that the pandemic is more invisible, right? I, I won't say that it's gone. You and I both know that firsthand, right? Like so true. <laughs> so now the challenge is, is I, I think people want us to go back to this certain way of doing things. And so part of what I think about as an administrator is, is really going back and sharing the story of the value of that flexibility and the value of seeing students and thinking about institutions and the way that we work with students in those flexible ways and maximizing that as it relates to student success. And so I think at the large scale, that's the way that I think about it. At the small scale, it's just more reward, more recognition, more uh, reminder that we still have to do professional development. We still have to help people feel good about who they are personally. Right. And, uh, life, life has been hard, right. So kind of tending to the personal care of folks and making sure that 
people aren't taking on too much. All of those things I think are things that from the pandemic's perspective, I've really tried to focus in on. All right. So this goes back to some uh, similar conversation. You talked about the most important part of your job. What's maybe the most frustrating part of your job? And you might've built some into that, right? Like you talked about, you're going to have days where you feel like you get kicked around and that are, that are a struggle. Um, but, you know, we have those things that we look at and we say, well, this is a roadblock. This is a roadblock to success. Maybe that's the frustrating part. I don't, I don't know. You may be thinking of something completely different there. Yeah. You know, I serve at the pleasure of our president and our provost, right? Like, I mean, we all do, right? At, right. at the end of the day, we all, we all report to someone. Uh, so, you know, to me, I think there are multiple challenges, right? One, the, the, the really frustrating piece, right, is I'll take my institution, for example. We're at our highest four-year graduation rates and six-year graduation rates in our history, right? But it hasn't always been reflected in first-year retention numbers. You know, we've trended up, but we've had bad years. And, and our activities aren't much different, right? The work, we don't, we're not caring any less, but, right. you know, if you look at a particular year on our campus, right, we had a pretty bad year in 2018. We, we've not, we didn't have a great year in 2020, but in between those years, we've trended up since we created our undergraduate advising centers with our first year retention. And so one of the frustrations is, and you have to do it, but articulating why that happened or how that happened and, and understanding. And so for us, it's just about understanding students. And then I think the other piece, right, is, is that, you know, when, when you do a lot of stuff, there is some stuff that you think is less important than other stuff, just generally, right? And so, you know, I look at our mission and I think about the work that I'm doing with first-year student retention, with graduation rates and retention rates and advising administration. And then every now and then something pops up in your responsibilities that you don't think connects to any of that. Right. But you got to do it right. You're being asked to do it and you've got to do it. And so that can be frustrating. And so trying to minimize those occurrences, or if, if that's something you've been tasked to do, whatever that is, as an administrator, it's trying to connect that to the overall goals, right? Even in your role, right? We all get asked to do things that maybe aren't aren't our favorite things to do. And in a role where you've got lots of things to do, it's it's about finding ways to kind of give the energy you need to get those things done. So I don't know that I, I mean, I don't need to get into specifics about what are, what is individually frustrating, right? Like, but, but, I, no, I would, we, we don't want to send that to, to people you may work with or for, you know, we're, we're, I think we're good there. I like your general generalization. <laughs> but, but we all do. I mean, I mean, I think, I think that that is the, that is the frustrating piece about this role in, in administration is that there are things that we like to do and things that we don't like to do. And, and having to do all of those things at a high level is challenging because it would be easy just to do the things that we like to do and get rid of the things that we think are dumb and we can't do that. <laughs> right. The balance is important. Yes. All right. I'm going to give you a better thing to talk about, right? You don't, you don't have to walk any lines here. Um, the most rewarding part of your job is. Yeah. The, the, the people that I've worked with both through Nakata, as well as here at USI, I have some great 
like I have some great people and I just want to share a story. Right. And my, my colleague, he's a new director and he's going to be embarrassed. I'm going to make him listen to this, but I, I went to the region five conference, uh, you know, last month, Brian Bowerman is a new director. We hired relatively young guy from Utah. He came in and he did his first presentation by himself, uh, at the region five conference. And I'm, he told me what he was going to do. And I sat there and kind of, I, I said, I was going to come and listen to it. And one of his advisors came and we both sat there and I got about midway through the, the session. And what I realized was this dude was killing it, right? Like it was an amazing session. And I turned to my, my advisor, Carissa Prince. And I said, this is freaking awesome. Like, this presentation is amazing. And he won best of region, right? Of course he won best of region, that's right? Like, yeah, which yeah. was awesome. And so, you know, like that's the best part, Like That's the best part. Yeah. And I went right to Terry Farr, who's our Nakata president now. And I was having lunch with her that day or I grabbed her at lunch. I said, my dude just brought it. I think he's going to win best of region, right? Like it, I didn't have any reason to think he would or wouldn't. I just kind of thought like, I've done a ton of presentations. I've, I've never won a best of, right? Like I'm not the best at anything, <laughs> but I was sitting in that session and I'm like, this is going to win. This is such amazing work. That's the best part of the gig, right? Like, so it's the people, right? And being impressed by the work that people are bringing every day, right? My, I, I'm everything I am here at the University of Southern Indiana because of the advisors, and the advising center directors, my academic skills staff, the people that I report to, right? Like I've just got great people, right? And that's the best part. Within Nakata, my success at the regional level, at the council and the board is because you work with great people, right? I, I've just been really lucky. I've been blessed. All For the most part, all my supervisors have been absolutely amazing. I would call each of them mentors, right? And that's that's the best part of being in higher ed, being in advising, working in a college campus is, is the people, right? That's it. And then, and then students make it fun too, right? Like, I mean, you sometimes in my role, you sometimes forget about the role that students play, but you know, I teach UNIV 101 every fall and I had a great UNIV 101 section this fall. My students were amazing. And that that's also the great stuff, right? Like it's just the great stuff. Right. Yeah. No, uh, I, I completely agree. Right. Like uh, recently, I was doing my evaluation with my supervisor, uh, Provost Patty Poulter here, and she asked this question. And and I have this, I have a terrible time sometimes framing me versus we. Um, I will often speak in we, and she says, no, no, no. What about you? <laughs> you know, yeah. you talk about your, your, your highlights of this last year. And I mentioned my team, right? And speaking in similar way to what you're mentioning, that team, when they're doing those things, the impact they have on students. Um, the impact that they do in their work, um, the good that we're doing as a profession, whatever that role may be, um, can become such an unbelievable story to tell um, because of the work that they're doing. And when you sit in the administrator role and you get to see those moments of shine occur, that's some sparkle. I mean, it's yeah. great. Yeah. It, it's just great. Yeah. So sometimes you just hope it's not in spite of you, but because of you. <laughs> That too, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Like the, the 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 insecure person in me sometimes thinks, are people just doing this in spite of my 
my efforts or because of my efforts, right? Like that. But 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 isn't that the role of, of a good administrator? Like sure. I know I, I have I have directors that that are uh, that I work with every day. That there's a certain ones that's like I'm just getting out of your way, right? Like yeah. you're amazing, and if I say anything or do anything here, it's just going to mess it up. Yes, <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's that balance. Absolutely. So uh, one of the things that always fascinates me uh, is uh, your presentations, and you mentioned it in your bio on happiness, right? Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how that's really evolved into a big portion of uh, who you are and what you often talk about, right? Like in, in that happiness uh, of, of, of life and profession and, and who you are and, and where that came from. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, so I, I shared this. I think I did the happiness presentation the first time maybe at the ILA conference in 2013. Uh, I had been in my role at USI for about six years. I'll just say it out loud, right? I, I just was not in a great place, right? Like I just was in a bad place. Professionally, uh, personally, I just was not doing great. Healthy, Health-wise, I was not very healthy. I was getting big and uh, I was bringing stress home. And I, I just, you know, I did what every good person does when they want to kind of figure something out. Like I went to Google and I typed in happiness, right? Like you just, you, it just, I ended up down a wormhole. Like how do I make myself happier? How do I help my people be happier? Uh, and, you know, you just learn a lot, right? Like you learn, I learned a lot. So the, the first piece was, this was a, a learning venture and it was totally selfish, right? It was really about trying to make myself a better person, right? A happier person, right? Like I wasn't happy and I wanted to be happier. Uh, but, but as I, as I, so it started that way, right? And, and really, really, I, I, I used that initially to kind of just talk about happiness and advising was kind of the, the, the natural progression, right? Like, you know, you go to conferences in the early 2010s and 12s, right? And you started to see the evolution of this importance that advising was playing. And I think, that with that came a lot of pressure, right? Or you go to conferences and people don't talk about how great their jobs are at these conferences, right? Like they're all talking about how hard their work is. They have too many advisees. They don't have time to get the important work done. And so I dug into a couple of satisfaction surveys that Nakata had done and started to learn what, what makes good environments, what makes environments that are less good. Why do people leave the profession? And so it evolved into more than just happiness. Because look, you know, one of the things I learned is you can't be happy all the time. Happiness isn't just something that happens. And in fact, right, like the science works against us, right? We're all defaulted to the negative. Uh, we do have genetic sets that might make us more prone to be cups half full instead of cups half empty people. But at the end of the day, that genetic set and our personal circumstances make up about 60% of our happiness. And then the 40% is what we can control, right? And so I spent a lot of time initially thinking, this is the 40% I can control. We need to talk to advisors about that 40%, both in work. And so, you know, you start to think about what that 40% entails, right? Service, uh, identifying what's important, being in the present moment, being grateful for the things that you are, spending intentional time kind of highlighting what's gone well. 
And all of those, what I, what I started to figure out is all of those things fit in for pretty naturally to our work as advisors, right? Like it's easy, it's easy for us to complain about how hard those jobs are. But at the end of the day, when the student walks into your office, you're serving students, right? If, if you're in the present moment, you're doing that work. If you're thinking about what's important at that moment in time, the student and their concerns are what's most important, right? In that role, happiness should be almost a default to the work that we're doing in advising. And there's a lot of white noise and distractions, right? Like, so being outside of that present moment, I think, is what can really skew our ability to be happy. And so the next evolution was how do we help advisors make meaning of their work, right? And so, you know, I talk about the difference between good and great. I talk a lot of times about no one is just an academic advisor. I mean, how many times do we do I go to a conference right in my role and I'm talking to an advisor and trying to get to know them a little bit better and what they're doing? And they say, well, but I'm just an academic advisor. I'm like, no one is just an academic advisor. Let's, let's be perfectly clear here. Right. No one is just that. And so um, I think that that evolution has really been important. And so the, the next part of that was connecting that to the world of work. Right. Like so I took happiness and I said, now we need to connect it to work. And so, uh, you know, the the Gallup polls about employment and engagement in, uh, you know, 50 percent pretty regularly through these Gallup polls that get updated every couple of years. Fifty percent of employees aren't engaged. You know, 20 percent are actively disengaged and 30 percent of folks are engaged. That's a pretty small number. And so. I like what Gallup's done. They've got these questions you can ask. When I present on this now, I almost always highlight those questions because as a supervisor, you can ask those questions, right? Or you can reflect on whether you're asking those questions. And it's it's been really good. And here's the bad news, right? Like, I don't know that I'm much happier now <laughs> than I was in 2013. Or I tell people, I joke a lot that I'm, I'm the least happiest, happy person <laughs> that I know, right? Like, I think my genetics set tends a little more to the glass half empty, which is weird because when I do strengths quests, I show up as positivity is like my number one strength. Like maybe I'm just willing myself to be positive, right? But there can be demons some days, right? Like that that really bring you down. And so the good news is that research has helped me both personally. And I've really enjoyed sharing this information at the professional level with advisors and advising administrators. It's important for them to hear the message, right? And I think it's important to have people understand that advising at its core, however you do it, right? And whatever philosophy or approach that you you take when you work with students, right? Like it, it fits the happiness mold pretty well, right? Like if we can really reflect on the work that we're doing, there, there should be a natural inclination to feel like you're making a difference, right? And so I try to really iterate that with advisors that I work with and with administrators. It's how do you get stu- how do you get advisors to feel that way, right? Like, are you asking the right kind of engagement questions? Are you helping advisors connect to mission? Are you rewarding and making sure they understand their work is meaningful, right? So that's the evolution. And I'm, I never tire of speaking about it, right? It's a great topic. There's no question about it because people want to be happy, right? Like everybody wants to be happy, but it's hard. There's no doubt about it. That's the goal, right? Yeah, it's the goal. For sure. And no, I think you're right. I think it's, uh, we keep coming back to this. There's, there's a balance to it all. 
And, and so I think that balance is, is really important and, and how we find that happiness and realizing that that happiness isn't always, uh, isn't always constant is that there's some ebbs and flows to it. Yeah. I would laugh there's a restaurant, Texas roadhouse. If you've ever gone there, oftentimes their servers have shirts on that say, I love my job. And I'm like, like, no, you don't like, <laughs> you probably like it. And then they gave you a shirt that said, I love my job and said, wear this, right. There's a balance to it all. It flows. <laughs> I, I, I hope they love it. Cause I hate to say this. I love going there, right? Like that's one of my guilty pleasure places. All right. Well, this, this is a good transition, right? So uh, I listen, I don't think this has been done uh, on the podcast before, but I have a lightning round for you. I, I, so let me tell you though, first Texas roadhouse, <laughs> 10 ounce ribeye, mashed potatoes and gravy and fries, right? Like those are the two sides. Like you dip the fries in the mashed potatoes and gravy and you get a medium steak, right? It's just perfect. Affordable and perfect. This segment is not sponsored by <laughs> Texas Roadhouse. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, thanks for the tip though, Brody. Absolutely. All right. So this is going to hit uh, some lightning round things. I got about 10 or 11 questions. Um, and uh, some of them are higher ed focused and some of them are not. But okay. um, I, I know p- folks are out doing summer things at this moment. Um, so the must eat restaurant when traveling to or through Evansville, Indiana area is? Pangea. You got to go to Pangea. What, what does Pangea have? It, they have pizza, the Detroiter or the Butcher, phenomenal. They have the drunken noodles. They have amazing spring roll. Just go to my Instagram. You'll see it. I post it every time I eat there. It's so great. Got it. All right. Uh, we were both uh, avid Cardinal fans. Uh, yes. So at the end of the season, the Cardinals will finish first. All right. And, and advance to win. God. Well, I mean, look, I'll be I'll be a total fanboy. Like they're going to win the World Series. Why? 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 Why say something less than that? All right. Come, come October. I'm sending this one back. To you. <laughs> I'm going to be massively disappointed or I'm going to look really like a smart. Yeah. Uh, trait that you see uh, as the most effective in academic advisors and, and a trait that they possess. Care. You have to care. Yeah. I agree. That's a good, that's a good answer. Thing you are most proud of within your work in Nakata. Golly, that's not lightning round. That's hard. Doggone it. Uh, the, the region work, right? Region five. I, I love region five, right? And uh, that that's where I came up through the region and, I love Region 5. I'm just proud of Region 5. Every time I go to a region conference or one of the drive-ins at the state or province level, I'm just – everything about Region 5 makes me happy, right? I just I just love the region, and it's been, it's been amazing. And so, you know, when I was region chair, the, the two conferences that I oversaw were great but and fun, and people did an, an amazing job. But I, I guess, you know – so my work, I think, both at the region level as region chair and then within the council and kind of overseeing region chairs, I guess that's that's the stuff, right? It's been great. Good, good, good. If you could earn one job in higher education, it would be. So I'm, I'm guessing I'm asking your dream job here. Within higher ed? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can't jump out and become Cardinal Broadcaster, Michael. Yeah, which, would be, but which would be my dream job. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'm keeping you in higher ed. Uh, I think like a dean of a university college, right, would certainly be great, right? Kind of overseeing that first year experience work. That, that's what I would really love to do. Favorite city in the U.S. other than the one you live in? Because I think you might say Evansville. Gee, no, I would not say Evansville. Come on. Hey, listen, I really, I find it to be delightful. It is delightful. 
You're welcome, Evansville. Yes. Favorite city? Uh, my wife and I love Bloomington, right? Like I went to school at Indiana University. There's no question about that. But I've done so much traveling, right? Like when I think about, let's do it this way. Like when I think about Nakata conferencing, or like in all the cities I've been, two cities pop up a lot, like for me, like, or two or three. I, I've loved Salt Lake City. was awesome in 2013. It was Salt Lake City. Uh, we're going to go to Utah this summer as part of our vacation. I've loved uh, Denver and kind of the surrounding areas. I loved Phoenix. So the West has been great. Uh, and then uh, at the region level, like Kalamazoo, Michigan was kind of fun. So there's three or four answers, like the air zoo there, the, the breweries there, right? Just super fun. There you go. Those are my answers. Indy's underrated as heck, I think. It's in, and for Matt Markin, it sounds like Portland will be added to that list. We're going west, and you've loved those cities. So Matt, I have absolutely. Matt and his crew there with the the conference coming up in Portland. I'm uh, very much looking great. forward to that. Agreed. Uh, same here. Uh, how long does it take you to get ready in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next question. <laughs> uh, ten minutes. Ten minutes. All spent on hair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the best age is. So this is weird. I don't celebrate birthdays all that big, right? Like in my family, birthdays weren't a huge deal, but I love every year, right? Every year I'm here is another great year, right? Like, so I'm 51 now and I love 51. It's awesome. Like, so let's go. Let's do it. Let's do it. You're owning it. This is probably not a lightning round question, but it could be. Uh, uh, The future success of higher education is dependent upon... That's a hard ass question. Well, the, the 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 other I had an alternate, and it was why can't we tickle ourselves? And I went with this one instead. That's good. <laughs> I'm glad. I like this question better, as eerily challenging as it may be. Uh, <laughs> you, look, um, I've got a couple people who've said, Brody, you got to read the Great Upheaval, right? It's a new book. I, I can't remember the authors, but it's it's. It's really kind of a warning shot about higher education. We, we are going to have to leverage and reconsider the student experience, right? Like we, we've got to figure out ways to kind of think about the 21st century student. Look, there are lots of challenges. There's financial challenges. There's return on investment. Uh, I, I would tell you, right, like on our campus, on the retention and student success side, like can we be better? Absolutely. But we are squeezing blood from a turnip right now. Right? Like, I mean, we're working our tails off to kind of maximize the student success quotient. And, and I just think we're going to have to start thinking about the whole thing a little bit differently, right? Just students are viewing the experience differently uh, and they, and we've got to figure that out, right? Like, We've got to figure it out. And it's going to be hard, right? Because there are financial challenges. There's there's mode of delivery challenges. There's student life challenges. Uh, and in the middle of that is advising, right? Like, so where does advising fit into all of that? And so I'm, I feel less hopeful, <laughs> actually. I'm, I'm nervous, right? If I were to be honest. And it's, it's daunting. There's no question about it. 
there are uh, things within that answer, right? Like, and, and you and I have had these conversations outside of uh, this podcast today where uh, the enrollment cliff that's coming and how that's tied to finances um, will be um, exceptionally hard for many institutions. Yes. And um, one of the things that we've talked about throughout this today is how much leadership matters within that. Yeah. And uh, if you are at a place um, where leadership um, is strong, then the next few years may not be as hard as um, they will be for other folks. Right. Um, but the thing that I think uh, we've talked about several times today is uh, the the role advising can have within that is going to be paramount. Yep. And, and, and so there's uh, whatever the changes that are coming and whatever, uh, you know, the, the future of success is dependent upon. I think advising is going to play a role in that. Yes, there's no question. No question. And, but right. I think understanding that it's it's a part of the larger the larger challenges too, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. So we, we, we can't end on doom and gloom. So you've mentioned um, that you are a social media user. Um, and, uh, and, and one of those things is that folks can follow you at, uh, on Twitter at, uh, Brody Brochiers. Yes. Um, and, uh, but so when you, you, you often tweet and when, and if folks go on and start to follow you following this podcast, scary. uh, sometimes it, it's a little scary, but you, you tweet about, uh, politics, uh, sports, music, and of course, higher education. Um, yes. so who are your go-to higher education follows? Like, you know, so folks are going to add you, but they should add these three or four others. God, like, I don't, I don't, I can say people that I like to follow, but I don't know that they're automatically, like, I love Kevin Cruz. He's a historian and he doesn't automatically talk about higher ed, right? Like I think about my undergraduate, I'm a political science major, history minor, sociology minor. So all things social science, I love, and I tend to kind of really move around those spaces more. I'm trying to think higher ed wise. You know, I always loved Eric Stoller when he was writing for Inside Higher Ed, but he's not nearly out there as much, uh, at least on Twitter. And he's really gotten in, he was into the digital world there for a little while. I, so, I, you know, 10 or 15 years ago, I would say him. I, now I feel, I feel massively underprepared to answer this question because. That's all right. That's all right. You can punt and just say, follow Brody Brochiers and look how, you know. Uh, <clears throat> There are a couple people who are uh, a couple people who are writing about the Great Resignation, and I can't think of them specifically. But there's a uh, uh, it's a woman who's written about and and is now coaching people out of higher ed. I, I'm not suggesting that people go to, to her and and visit. I can't remember her name, but I have found her information and the threads that she's talked about related to the challenges of higher ed to be really poignant and pretty on par. I can't think of her name for the life of me, doggone it. But uh, those are a couple. And, you know, after that, I'm really, I must admit, I'm really more into the political stuff. And, you know, I love the Washington Post. Inside Higher Ed is something that I follow both uh, and the Chronicle, right? Like they have great stuff. The Washington Post has a great education section, right? Like, so those are the things on Twitter, even if I'm following uh, larger news outlets like the Washington Post, New York Times. I'm always looking for the higher ed articles that are connected to those those news outlets for sure. 
so much of uh, my learning uh, within social media, and this happens probably more on Twitter and Instagram, are um, following on Twitter. Um, they have typically people put out lists of the most active presidents or vice presidents of yes. specific areas. And those are always really engaging lists to follow. And then, um, oh, the, the amount I learned through following other university admission admissions and university accounts on um, on social media. You know, sometimes it's not reinventing the wheel. Sometimes it's just borrowing from what they're doing um, because it leaves me in awe sometimes of what's being accomplished on campuses. And it sets some goals for the things that that I feel like I can accomplish. So um, sometimes it's that you want to go to a conference, you don't get to go. And so you follow it on Twitter and you get the yeah. conference behind the conference. I think social media plays that role in general, just in some of the things you can learn from folks in other institutions. Yeah, there is an advising community uh, page like uh, on Twitter now. Like, And I know that there are several folks in there and I'll post to that uh, from time to time. Uh, I like those kind of, uh, they're not closed lists, but essentially they're kind of a, a community group and you can post just to those groups. And I've, I've enjoyed that on the advising side. You know, I follow all the Nakata region stuff, right? There's no question that that's really helpful. You know, I think about like Oregon state's got their UESP advising the exploratory area. Like I tend to look for exploratory areas because that's kind of my background. Like, you know, so Brigham Young and Florida state were, are all places, University of Utah, uh, or Oregon State, like Missouri State. I, I know Christina does a lot of a good work with their, their stuff. And so those are, those. When, when I'm looking at, I like to look at advising pages, right, and see what folks are posting. And those kinds of things have been really, really helpful. So, yeah. Well, Brody, thank you for spending some time with us today. It's a pleasure. And, uh, and uh, we're, I'm glad to serve as guest host this week and get to spend some time talking profession with you and not be interrupted by car rides or getting out of the, the vehicle to have to go do the hundred things that go on in our lives outside of work. Absolutely. Um, but it's been great to have you. Any final thoughts for the, the, the listeners today? Guster is for lovers, Kevin Thomas. Don't you forget it. <laughs> I, I don't even know where to go from there, but. Uh, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Well, thank you for being. So this, this is it. So there's one last thing, right? Oh, yeah. so, so, look, the pa- the pandemic was hard, right? The the personal piece is really important to our overall happiness, right? So find the things that find the things that make you happy and cultivate that, right? I love the band Guster. I will till I die, right? I'm going to see Guster. I have three concerts I'm going to this summer. They're all Guster, right? All in different places, all in different venues, but. Um, you know, I got massively into vinyl when the pandemic hit. Vinyl kind of helped me kind of get through uh, the, the lockdown and then post-lockdown. And it's an expensive hobby, right? Your hobbies don't need to be expensive. I'm a runner, too. I run religiously, right? So I love food, too, right? So find that thing that's going to make you happy and, and continue to cultivate that, too, beyond the advising side, right? Like, that's my final thought, right? Like, so... Whether it's find your guster, Kevin Thomas, find your guster, whatever that is, find it. It's like the one thing from City Slickers, right? Like, I don't know what that one thing is, but you find it. Find your guster. Yes. Very good. Thank you so much, Brady. Absolutely. Appreciate you spending some time. Yeah. We'll see you later. 
Thanks for hopping on as guest host today, Kevin. I'm taking notes for questions to ask in future interviews. Thanks so much. And Brody, thanks for sharing your insights as an administrator, uh, your reminders to know the whole student and their stories, which can inform those larger macro issues and where advising has gone since the pandemic started. Let's definitely have a part two with the both of you. And last but not least, let's hear from Dr. Melinda Anderson. All right, so let's welcome back to the podcast, Dr. Melinda Anderson, the Executive Director of NACADA. Melinda, how are you? I am well. How are you, Matt? I'm doing well, too. Um, we're recording this in early June. Um, it's very busy where I'm at. We just got done with our third new student orientation for first-year students. We got seven more to go this month, so it's going to be pretty busy, but I'm sure you're pretty busy as well. Yes. Well, you know, I know many campuses right now are in the throes of orientation and, and welcoming, um, you know, their new students, whether those are first time, full time freshmen or transfer students or students that are being re-enrolled. And so I know every everybody's really um, busy, um, but these are exciting times. And, you know, and the association very busy with our events. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we are in early June, so preparing for Summer Institute. Uh, but we just most recently wrapped up our last region um, conference when we were in Victoria, oh. British Columbia for Region 8. So shout out to, to all the regional conference experiences that went really well. And so as we look towards the summer, towards the annual conference, you know, just like most campuses, you know, we finish one thing and then look forward to the next one and, and celebrate along the way. So... Yeah. And by the time this episode airs, you're going to be traveling. You're going to be going to California. Can you talk to us more about what's going to be happening there? Yes, I'm actually really excited. Um, California State University at Dominguez Hills is uh, doing their inaugural Juneteenth celebration, and they are inviting Cornell West as one of their keynote speakers. Uh, he is going to be talking about the urgency of now. And they had asked me to join uh, to be one of their think tank facilitators and then to also speak on the future of academic advising or holistic academic advising. And so I'm just honored to be a part of an inaugural event, you know, especially around Juneteenth. Uh, when I think about um, all the things that we have going on in the world, it's just really good to just take a moment to stop, pause and reflect uh, and to celebrate something like Juneteenth. Um, it really is wonderful to be a part of this particular event saying, how do we look at where we are now as a society? How do we come together? How do we build relationships? How do we forge alliances? How do we look towards the future? And then for me to be invited, and particularly when you think about NACADA, the Global Community of Academic Advising, holistic future advising support in our diverse populations for our students on our respective campuses. So just being invited to that conversation and to be at that table, especially with great renowned speakers like Cornel West that I mentioned, but Sean Harper um, um, is also going to be there. Uh, and Tyrone um, Howard um, is also going to be a featured speaker. I just cannot wait. So really excited. Yeah. And I mean, even though this is, let's say, an event from Cal State Dominguez Hills, like they're bringing in people from outside of California. I think this is going to be, I think, an uh, educational time and Hopefully you have a good time as well. Are you pretty excited for Cornell West? I am. And, you know, I, I'm i really excited for any time that you can get around the table with thought leaders. Mm 
mm-hmm. who are looking at not just what has happened historically, but contemporary, right? Mm-hmm. Given the context of where, what we're living in, what's happening with our leaders, what's happening from, you know, all vantage points, right? Economically, uh, politically, <clears throat> socially inclined. Uh, how do we come together and how do we make sense of the world that we're in right now? So definitely, I, I hope that it's not too obvious that I'll be fangirling a bit um, with uh, him um, specifically, but then especially with all the other great speakers, I've had the opportunity to meet with uh, Dr. Sean Harper at, at another event, which, in, you know, what's interesting is that when I did meet with him briefly, he mentioned to me that his first research grant that he ever got was from Nakata when he was at Penn State. And it sparked his interest in research and his activity. And he said that he would always be grateful for Nakata of believing in him, even as a young scholar, and being able to do all the great work that he's done around diversity and inclusion in higher education. So I'm really looking forward to being able to reconnect with him and and hearing um, where he's he's been and the work that he's doing, because I know he's doing some really great things. Yeah, no, that's what's up. And, you know, we're talking about this event you're going to be going to, but then also around this time is going to be the first summer uh, Institute. Um, Now, by the time this airs, it'll already be going on, but there is going to be another summer Institute in July. Can you talk to us about what the summer Institute is? Yeah. So thank you for um, bringing, um, you know, our summer uh, work up because I think, um, especially if you're new to our association, you know, you're hearing about, you know, annual conference, regional conferences, uh, and especially the winter institutes that, you know, happen in January. But the summer institutes um, are a little bit longer than the winter institutes. They're um, about, so for example, we're going to be in Erie for almost a week looking um, deeply into academic advising um, practices, uh, strategies, Um, So, for example, if you're interested in just, you know, how do I build an advising syllabus? How do I think about assessing my programs? How do I think about leading in, you know, diversity initiatives in my advising spaces Um, are just some examples of some of the uh, topics that we'll consider. But then people are still bringing action plans, right? I have an idea or I know that I need to execute something on my campus. You can bring an idea with you and you'll be working with faculty in these institutes and we'll be able to kind of guide you in your processes as you move forward and think about how do you bring your action plan alive on your respective campus. And so we have two sessions. Um, So you mentioned, you know, we will have one in June by the time this airs, but then definitely, you know, it won't be too late to to come to the one in, in July. Erie, we're going to be right there on the lake, so it's going to be beautiful. So we always try to pick, you know, really great spots in the summer uh, while you come together with your colleagues and, and really great faculty that um, have really strong knowledge base and skill sets in the areas in which people are looking to grow. And I always thank people. I know summer's a busy time. How do I get time off my campuses to engage in this work? Um, but it's meaningful. Uh, it's impactful. And it really helps you think differently about how when you come back to your campuses, how do you continue to make a difference for your students and for your staff? Yeah. And and I'm sure people listening might be thinking like, that sounds really great. I want to attend. But like you're saying, it, you know, I might be super busy during summer at this point. Uh, so maybe the July one may not work out. But if someone wants to go, they might also be thinking, well, I need to ask my, my supervisor, my boss. And I know one thing that might come across as like, well, a, a regional conference, usually the registration fees about $150, $155. An annual conference is maybe $400, a little bit over. 
but for the uh, institute, they might see that eight hundred seventy-five dollar registration fee. Mm-hmm. So, can you talk more about you know what could convince, let's say, a boss to hey, let my employee attend this? That it really will be beneficial for right. them and for our institution or department. Right. No, I, I really like. Um, the way that you've asked that question, because that's the real truth, right? Sometimes it's it's not necessarily, do I think that this is a good idea? It's how do I um, create the, the right space and opportunity to justify to, you know, my supervisor or to senior level administrators that this is the right investment right now. When I've asked the question, what's happening? What is the future of higher education? Um, how do we do this work better? I, I sometimes I stand back and I say, can you can you afford not to, right? Invest in thinking differently about your work. Um, we always talk about the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. I know that sometimes this, these price tags may seem steep, but when we think about four and a half days of intense work reflection. creation of an action plan and an assessment plan of the work that you're going to do when you bring back to your campus, and then the ability to have connections and follow up with the faculty that are helping you with designing your project or your goal when you get back to your campus. When you think about how you're supporting students, either through a retention or a completion plan when you come back to your campus, uh, that investment is, is well worth it. Um, I know that sometimes people think one pebble, so for example, one person from one campus, what difference does that make? But it's the ripple effect, right? You have one person from an institution that's representing so many interests and stakeholders. And when they come back, they are on fire for not just change, but for shifting the culture in order to make a difference on their campus uh, for their students and keeping the students centered in, in the part of that equation. And so we give them tips and, and skills and um, how do you know? And uh, practices on how to do that. How do I? How do I manage up? How do I use data differently? How do I think differently about how to resolve uh, these issues? And how do we build a community so that when I leave this institute, that I'm not just going to go back to business as usual, right? And so these these uh, institutes, our regional conferences, we work really hard to make sure that they're not just inoculations, Matt. You know, it's not just I went and I had a really great time and I met really great people and we're doing similar work. It is creating a community and so that you can see the growth and development in terms of how you're looking at your campus and how you're solving a problem. Uh, But then you're also connected back into this space where you are constantly sharing ideas and you're constantly thinking about ways to shift culture and energy on your campus in order to continue to improve outcomes for your students. Yeah, so at least it sounds like with the Summer Institute, um, the attendee is leaving with an action plan of sorts. Um, So hopefully that does bring some sort of change, whether it's little or large um, at their institution. But you mentioned like energy, and and I think connected to that, it's like the motivation to do it. Um, And also probably knowing that at certain campuses, sometimes change takes a while. And so it is a process. Um, so you might have some that attend the Institute or have gone to a conference. They want to bring change back to their campus and they feel like they hit a brick wall. Mm -hmm. What does one do about that? (laughs) (laughs) You say, what do you do when you hit a brick wall, right? 
So what I often, um, so when I was in those spaces, right? So I wasn't, so I always want to remind people, like, I was not born in this role, right? I did, I was not born in this idea of, um, and in this space, if you will. And so when I, I hit brick walls, I always try to think to myself, um, I try to reframe it, right? So is this about process? Is this about policy? Is this about um, people? You know, and then trying to figure out, well, which which one is um, where I'm feeling the most challenged? Is it about people? Is it about a lack of understanding or awareness or resources? Is it about policy or process? Um, who's responsible for that policy or process? Um, how do I help them understand that the best avenues or how how should we shift this policy or, or practice, if you will, in order to get the best the best outcomes that we're trying to achieve? I'm always thinking about coalition building. And I know that sometimes people say, I don't like politics. You know, it makes me nervous. But if you st- if you don't think about politics as this idea that I have and you don't, if you think of politics as this idea of coalition building and how do we come together and we just have different needs or we see the problem differently. But if the goal is always student outcomes, how do we help students learn what they need to learn? How do we help students grow in the direction of what we want them to grow? When you're hitting that brick wall and you're breaking down kind of where you feel like the wall is, then it gives you options to figure out, well, okay, what is the best strategy to, to tackle the best wall, to, to this brick wall, right? So I love your analogy, right? Is the brick wall too high, right? Do I not have a ladder? Mm-hmm. You know, is is the the brick wall um, too too long this way? You know what I mean? Maybe I need to dig under, you know? So, uh, and do, do I have a shovel, right? And so I think breaking down kind of the problem at first is then going to give you strategies. But the one thing I do want to come back to is this point of hope. I think sometimes when people get back, they're excited because they've been around people who are also excited. And then you get back and you're by yourself. And then you're just like, man, who's going to motivate me to keep wanting to move forward when everybody else around me just says, hey, man, it's just going to be what it is. Mm-hmm. It is the community that's going to continue to lift you up and to encourage you. And I think that that's the part of the networking that I think sometimes people don't really see to their advantage. You know, you're working with like-minded people and then you're back on your campus and you may feel isolated or you can't find your um, your village right on your campus. And so how do you create that um, same energy that you had at a conference experience on your particular campus? And so finding strategies in order to do that, to kind of keep you motivated when you do run into that brick wall. And so I always just remind people that there, there's the hope of the way that you move forward is going to always be important when you're thinking about shifting culture or trying to get people to move on the same page, even if they don't necessarily agree with your particular solution of how you need to move forward. Um, and then we all want students to be successful. And so keeping that in the center uh, of your goal, even when you feel like um, times um, may not be exactly where you want them to be. Um, and so that that's what I would offer for anybody who finds themselves stuck or are looking at a brick wall right now. Um, yeah. No, that's great advice because it's, it's almost that some of these strategies, if they feel like they're hitting that brick wall, they can get through in the short run utilizing these strategies to eventually address the main things in the long run and then still utilize those same strategies. And let's shift over to, I mean, we're talking about the Summer Institute, so keyword summer. And, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of people outside of higher education a lot of times think that we as advice professionals, educators or whatnot, we get summer off. So (laughs) what is summer like for the executive director and the EO staff? 
I know it's I've, I'm I'm so glad we're talking about this because um, I do remember you know when I you know cause I just most recently left the campus right and so people would always say like what are your summer vacation plans and you're like uh, I'm still gonna be here so enjoy enjoy your time right. Um, so things are still, like I mentioned earlier, busy in the EO because we do have summer programs, you know, preparing for annual conference. It happens in the fall. Uh, the board and council are still quite busy, you know, getting through or thinking about strategic goals and benchmarking and, um, committee work, um, is still happening within all respective divisions. So, um, the EO and, and supporting our Nakata leaders, that work still is happening in the summer. Um, and for me specifically, you know, I'm, you know, still learning aspects of this position, you know, it hasn't been quite a year yet. And I know that some people are still kind of like, what hasn't been a year. And I'm like, oh no, this is, this is month uh, 11. Um, you know, this is June. I started July one. And so just, I'm still learning a lot, um, in the role. And so having events, um, like for example, you know, going to, uh, the Juneteenth event, but then, you know, still, um you know, um, engaging in like Summer Institute um, while also um, thinking strategically about how the executive office continues to do um, good work and supporting um, the changes that are happening in the association. And then also more, you know, the the field itself and advising has con- continued to, to change rapidly. And I know that some people think of that being necessarily connected to the idea of the pandemic and operational changes, but um, in terms of the enrollment challenges that we're seeing in higher education that were happening even before the pandemic, but just in terms of supporting diverse populations. So from a pre- from a professional development standpoint, what do our members need? Right. Those are those things are going to look differently. And so how do we support our um, members in our association? And so that we're not doing things right that no longer make sense because that's not what people need in order to do their best work on their campuses. And so we we are quite busy uh, in the summer in terms of thinking through those things strategically and then operationally still executing a lot of things. So we're trying to also find time for breaks. I always encourage people, you cannot pour from an empty cup, you know, are, are the things that we like to quote and say. But I really have um, encouraged the staff, you know, please take some time this summer. Um, you You've really, if you, you know, You've just got to recharge in, in the ways that make sense for you um, to don't feel because, you know, I always I had my I always love talking about this one particular provost, um, Marilyn Shear, when I, when I was at UNCW and and she would always say, you know, work is going to be there, you know, so you got to make sure that you're protecting, you know, your, your body and your mind and, and making sure that you're resting when you can. So I, I do uh, encourage the staff to take time off when they can in the summer um, to make sure that um, that we're recharging and taking care of ourselves and our families. And so I know that that's becoming more of a challenge, especially when I think about our members and then my colleagues in our respective roles. Uh, I'm not a really good person uh, in terms of taking my advice. You know, you know, Matt, you know, we've had a lot of conversations offline like, hey, how are you doing? I'm like, (laughs) you know, I am working on self-care. I'm working on taking my own advice in terms of taking Mm -hmm. break. Uh, But there's just uh, a lot of exciting work to be done. Um, But I I do need to remind myself sometimes that I I need to take some time to and make sure that I'm recharging my my body and my mind. I was so excited about everything that's happening. Um, but you know, I want to be present to see it too. So <laughs> I've got to remind myself that I need to slow down sometimes. It's a marathon and not a sprint. 
That's exactly what I was about to say was higher ed, advising, Nakata, making change. It's a marathon. Right. So what about you, Matt? What, do you have any uh, summer plans? I know we talked about orientation. You're rolling in that. But I do hope that you're taking some of my advice and, I, and you're going to take some time for yourself this summer. I'm trying. I'm trying. Uh, yeah, we have seven more orientations to go. And then we go into transfer orientation in July. So luckily, what's nice about um, our institution currently for summer is we work a 410 schedule. So um, I do get Fridays off. Okay. And I'm more of a morning person anyway. So to be at work at seven and start, I'm like, fantastic. And now <laughs> to get the benefit of getting a three-day weekend, even better. Um, right. But yeah, in August, I will be going to a, a Star Trek convention in Las Vegas. Nice. So, yes. That sounds exciting. My my daughter and my son would love that. I would oh, too. Yeah. I mean, I'm just be honest. Like we're all, I love it. We're all. Comic-Con, name it, fill in the blank, we're there. So that's yeah. yeah, those are the type of events that, hey, you'll have, you know, a lot of people there, but everyone is all happy, excited to be there. Um, they get to, they're, they're finding their joy, having a good time. Mm-hmm. And so usually I'm, I'm very much uh, introverted, but that's a place where I get energy. So oh. it's, it's going to be a good time. Oh my gosh! I cannot. Uh, do you dress up? Are you one of those that dress up? Or no, I I, I don't do the cosplaying because uh, that costs money. You know, I got I got other bills to pay. <laughs> <laughs> That's like I got bills. I love yes. it. Yes, I can go to that fantasy land in a way, but and I'm realistic though. <laughs> right, right. I love it because I was going to say you've got to take pictures, but you say okay, so you don't dress up, but. I, um, but I do love the creativity when you see yeah. people in those spaces and I'm just mm-hmm. like, gosh, this is so amazing. So, um, but I'm excited for you. That sounds oh, like, fun. I appreciate it. Yeah. And you were mentioning that this, you're coming up on your one year anniversary as executive director. And this also means, you know, bittersweet that it's also Charlie Nutt, um, cycling off, uh, th- later this month. Yeah. Any any words, anything you want to say uh, to Charlie or about Charlie? Yes. So, you know, you know, he was in phase retirement. And I know that mm-hmm. sometimes people are like, well, I don't understand. So um, I thought he already it, retired last year. I know. <laughs> right. So people were like, I don't understand. Like, Charlie, isn't he already? So, no, Charlie was phase retirement. And so, yes, he officially retires June 30th. And um, but, you know, Charlie will never be too far away from my heart or my mind. Um, he's just always been um, a tremendous ally for me professionally, even when I wasn't um, in this particular role. And so he's just always had really good insight um, and advice um, when you think about being the third person only ever to hold this role, um, just being able to still pick up the phone and and get his perspective um, or, you know, him just excuse me, just being there and just understanding kind of what I'm going through when I'm feeling like I'm being pulled in different directions. Um, but definitely just his contributions to when he was in this particular role, just seeing the growth and trajectory, right? When you look at, so I'm one of those, I love strength finders. And so if you look at like my strengths, it's, you know, context is in there. So when I look at context and I think about the trajectory and the growth around the association, you know, when he was executive director, um, you've just got to imagine the magnitude, right? In terms of uh, what that role and responsibility and the tensions were and in his particular role, it was growing, right? Mm-hmm. So you have, when you think organizationally, right, you've got these growths and then dips in terms of how organizations kind of move through cycles. 
Um, and so I can only imagine when it was just exploding in growth and membership and doing all these different activities, like how he was all over the place. And so I think about my parallel journey in terms of COVID, right, and the pandemic and pulling people out of a pandemic and looking at how campuses are coming out of a pandemic. Um, but then you're also having this change around student success and how people see student success as now as this beacon and this strategy that's, you know, this, this is what's going to save our campus. And then academic advisors saying, well, finally, somebody sees Jesus, but wait a minute, that's not the way that we think about our work. And so, um, you know, so we're moving in different spaces and the conversations are um, um, sometimes the same, but then uh, luckily they're different. And so him being able to have uh, me being able to pick up the phone and talk to him through some of those things and, you know, knowing some of the players that are still out there is just really comforting. Um, and Charlie, a lot of people still know him, know him very well. Um, and so he'll never be too far away from our hearts and minds. And we look forward to celebrating him um, at annual conference um, because with, with you know, everything in Cincinnati coming out of COVID, you know, really wanting to, to do it well out with a bang, you know, at the end of such a remarkable and great career and really wanting to be able to celebrate that. So we're looking forward to that. Oh, no, 100 percent. Yeah. Look forward to seeing him in, in October at the conference. And speaking of conferences, you know, we we're talking about region conferences are now over. We have the annual conference fast approaching. New student orientations are in full swing. Advisor burnout is, you know, even more prevalent. Many institutions have advisors positions posted, uh, but they're having a hard time filling those positions. A lot going on, good and not so good. So with the time remaining, I just want to leave it open to you. Like, what is your message to advising professionals, to, to listeners? Yeah. You know, Matt, I just always want to, I just feel so compelled to always thank you for this platform and this space and um, allowing um, honesty in this channel. Um, I know that many campuses and specifically the advisors and administrators that I've been talking to are really challenged with what we're seeing right now. The turnover, uh, I'm hiring you know, new people, trying to get them to come up to speed. I know that there's a lot of frustration, but then there's also a lot of um, hope right? And excitement around the idea of new people coming into the space and really being excited to work with students and being able to commit themselves to seeing um, the value in the work that we're doing and helping students navigate what I call the hidden curriculum. A lot of people call it the hidden curriculum, higher education. But even when we think about first generation students and even second generation students, right? It has shifted so much from even five to even, you know, 10 years ago, but even five years ago, you know, there are so many different things that students are now navigating. And when we think about how critical this particular juncture is in higher education for, for students, for faculty, for administrators, I just want to continue to encourage those who are in the field or are thinking about leaving the field or saying, maybe this is not the space for me. Um, you know, I want to give them heart, um, but I also want them to reflect deeply on where is the best place for their skills um, and their service to the field in higher education. Uh, we need you. 
Um, I would hate to continue to see somebody say, this isn't the place for me when we know that we could be doing better as supervisors and as administrators. I would hate to see people say, I'm leaving because there's no career ladder and I need upward trajectory and I need um, a different salary opportunity for myself to be able to provide for my family or I need a different um, educational opportunity and I can't get that here. I, I would hate to lose people when there's things that I know that exist that we can fix. Uh, but more importantly, when I think about what's happening right now, especially in the heat of the summer, when you're seeing students come to campus because they have that hope in their eye about, I'm coming to college because I'm hoping to change who I am in the world, and I'm hoping to change my my fortune for my family. I'm hoping to change the fortune for the kids that I'm I don't have yet, right? I'm hoping to see myself differently in the world because up to this point, I didn't think it was possible right? I know that we are necessary for that work. And I know that there's times when we're tired, bone tired, and you need somebody to either hold your hand or sit with you in silence and just to remind you that you're important and you're valuable, even if nobody else around you knows that in that moment you needed to hear that thing. I want this to be the message, Matt, that we send them to them that says that you are valuable, you are important, you are critical to the mission of every institution and every campus that you work at. And together, if we continue to identify what the challenges are, how do we continue to improve the work around the way that we see ourselves in these spaces, things will get better. If we keep the student in the center of our work, if we keep reminding administrators, senior level administrators, governance, legislators, right, if we keep reminding them that they're the center of the work, then they will absolutely, no doubt, cannot say that what we do is not critical to institutions. And they will respect and value the work that we're doing. I see it every day. When that message clicks, there's no way that they doubt how valuable we are. And I see changes happening. Like you said, it may not happen overnight, but they're happening. And I'm not going to just tell people, hold on, just hold on. You know what I mean? That message would would not respect you. But my message is, is that you're valuable and you're critical and this field needs you. It needs your heart. It needs your mind and it needs your energy. And we are here um, to be with you every step of the way. And I think, you know, people listening are going to know that this is real and this isn't just, you know, fluff talk. This is raw, honest communication that that you're giving. And it's great advice of, of what you have. And, and just like what you're saying, hope. So, Melinda, great to have you on for this mid-year message and you take care of yourself as well. And we'll have some, we'll have that accountability between the both of us to make sure that we are taking care of each other as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Sounds great, Matt. And as always, it's so good to be able to be in this space with you. Yeah, same here. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. Melinda. Always a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you for the information about the Nakata Summer Institutes, as well as your mid-year message. I'm filled with hope and that extra bit of motivation to make it through this summer. And episode 61 is done. Follow Adventures in Advising on social media at Advising Podcast and YouTube at Adventures in Advising. I will catch you on the next episode with episode 62. Apple